As you're listening to the following music selections, adjust the volume, bass, and treble controls to suit your tastes. Welcome to Android's Dungeon on CFRU 93.3 FM, broadcasting typically out of the University of Guelph, Guelph, Ontario campus. This is not the university. This is our respective offices or closets or holes in the walls that we've carved holes through to stare and spy on guests as they traipse around our mansion in the Louisiana swamp on one scary evening. And if they survive the night, they inherit the colonel's bequest. I am Jack, right. and I'm joined by Joel. What the hell was all that? <laughs> no, no, no reference to. Uh, it was one of my favorite adventure games from uh, Sierra back in the day. Roberta Williams, who designed the King's Quest series and arguably revolutionized adventure gaming as we know okay. it, uh, she had a spin-off series from King's Quest because she got kind of bored with those games after making them over and over and over again. And it was the uh, the game called. It was the first Laura Bow game where you play a. You know, I think it's in the twenties, uh, and it's still a, um, a text-based adventure game, but it's using the SCI graphics engine, which is like the spiffier version of the AGI one that was used for all the King's Quest games up till I think King's Quest. Well, technically four had two releases, which is wild. They had an AGI SCI, but I, I'm getting really bogged down here. But anyway, it was a game where you played this uh, young journalist in Louisiana who's invited with a friend to. Her uncle's, great uncle's place in this middle of the swamp. You have to take a boat there. And it turns out he is dying and he's going to provide his estate to one person at the end of the night. And nobody knows who's going to inherit it. But throughout the night, people start disappearing and you have to investigate their murders. And you're going all over this gorgeous, like super evocative adventure game world of this uh, spooky Louisiana island in the middle of the night. And you're... You can go between the walls to spy on people's conversations, and you have to piece things together. And it's 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 frankly just a good story as far as mysteries go. It's it's solid. There have been far dumber and worse mysteries I've seen on TV shows and movies than there was in this video game, computer game from like the early '90s. So that's your little piece of gaming trivia right there. Of course, it's Joel's favorite game. Right? Have you played it? Pardon me. When was the last time you played it? Uh, I think two years ago, actually. Not bad. It's aged like wine, but for people who are totally alien to the the series or the style, it would be like before the show started. Joel and I were discussing kind of obsolete forms of uh, peripherals, and also, I guess, current peripherals. How uh, it seems like most modern laptop designers. Uh, I think Apple's the number one culprit because as soon as they started doing it, I was like, "Oh, people fall for this? Okay, we can do it too." Uh, with ditching USB slots and and bizarre proprietary connections on laptops so you end up scrounging like spare usb spare an hdmi it's there's nothing so then you gotta pay them four or five hundred dollars to get their dock right get their dock and you think like oh you you think you're saving money because they're not putting these these things on there it's wrong totally wrong so you're you're paying for it in the end because dad had to get a dock he got a new laptop and has two usb slots if that ain't cheap yeah and it wasn't a cheap laptop either. You so. could buy like a USB splitter for ten bucks. Maybe. Do, do those actually work? Fifteen, twenty. Oh yeah. Huh. Shocking. It, technically, it slows down your USB by the amount of 
things you put in it, Becky? Oh no, my mouse, my, my yeah, keyboard. Exactly. <laughs> and my latency. I'm not playing Counter Strike. I don't care. As if it even matters, too. Uh, Joel, what have you been playing recently? Oh, it's been a little slim for board games. Uh, we did get in another um, DC, obviously, and then uh, uh, Raiders of the North Sea, which I thought I made this huge deal about you having to play, and I was sure I either lent it to you or we got a game in at some point, but I must have must have been crazy. It's probably because you you love it so much. You had this. You probably had this dream where you lent it, and, and it was. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is the greatest game of all time. I, I had this dream where, like, it was just all of us on an island playing Raiders. Like, some, <laughs> you know, uh, waiters bringing us uh, daiquiris every ten minutes or something. <laughs> uh, waiter, I need another mojito. Go home. Got something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've not played it yet. I know you really like it, and you've talked about it, and. Didn't you say that Jason played it once and he went out and like tried to acquire a copy or immediately wanted to buy it, went and bought one because he loved it so much? Yep. Yep, it's a good game. Which is like the polar opposite reaction to Meadow, which I'm still fascinated by. I'll see if I can kind of break down what I like about it. Since I've already described it in the show, I'll just... Well, let's say, you know what? It's... I'll try to bottle this energy. No, no one ever accused us of being uh, constantly fresh every episode, so let's keep going. Yeah. So... I think the and I, and I think I said this last time was that get the uh, what's the other one with the dice? I guess this has dice too, but the other one is like all your warriors are dice. I know I had it just until you started explaining it more. It's a uh, <laughs> uh, Midgard. Yeah, Champions of Midgard, which I have and I always liked, and I think I said last time that I think Raiders replaces it. And the thing, the main difference I think between the two is that um, Midgard is a little more sandboxy. You know, you have the option to just build up a really big army and go straight across and do the really hard monsters, or to kind of keep mining these easier monsters or uh, the medium ones. Even <laughs> it's just kind of like a, a bit more chaotic. In Raiders, they have this mechanic where if you have a little black maple, you can only go to the lower stuff. Mm. And you can only invade harbors. But every time you invade a harbor, a gray maple is pulled off of it instead of the black one. So then you have black and gray maples, and they both do different things in in the hometown. Huh. So like black maples get you more money, and gray maples get you more resources like uh, supplies in order to feed your people on raids. Um, and so they each have their strengths and weaknesses. And then eventually you'll start taking those gray ones and now you can go invade uh, monasteries and outposts. So those are like halfway up the board. Um, and so then all the gray ones are able to either go to the harbor, which is the one you did with the black one, or go up to the monasteries and outposts. And then when you go to the monasteries and outposts, you put on your gray one and you pull off a white meeple. And now you have the special super meeple, which is still, you know, has strengths and weaknesses on the worker board. But now you can go up to the fortresses at the top of the board. 
So there's this idea of a progression and unlocking of each section of the board as you're going on because you know you get a little bit up, you start getting gray meeples, and then you get further up, you get white meeples, and then with the white meeples, you can actually end the game because the end of the game is triggered when there's only one fortress left, mm-hmm. and then you just count score. So what it does for you is it kind of creates this. I don't want to say like it's like a. A predetermined path for the game to progress because you can really you can do anything you want but it gives you sort of a a feeling of having leveled up well i was going to ask it seems almost as if there's a um a very linear progression to it that you go from only being able to get this part to being able to go to the next level and go to the further on up there so it's it's a good sense of what I think a lot of games try to do. Like an engine building game tries to, all of a sudden you, I, I think all the best engine building games ideally should end just either before or right after your engine actually starts. But there's a sense of getting better and better and then the game ends. So it's this RPG, I guess you're saying, sensation yeah, of like as soon as stuff starts clicking, it's, you know, you've improved. You're improving. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also uh, the cards themselves. They're basically cards are warriors that you have, and each one increases your strength, either from zero to four. Mm-hmm. And then you add all those cards together, and then you add them to your, you know, metal forging if you've done any. And that's what you kind of the number you come in with anytime you raid somewhere. And let's say uh, every, everywhere has like a a sort of a elevating scale of victory points, so. Let's say you go to the fortress, which is like the final destination. If you get a 14, you might get four points. And if you get a 21, you get six or eight points. And like if you get some crazy number like 27, you're going to get like 10 points. And what that does is it kind of forces you to decide whether or not you're ready, right? Because you can progress and get the gray meeples and the white meeples and then get enough resources and then you're good to go. Or you can play it really slow and you can actually trade in steel to make yourself stronger. And then um, also like play the whole card system where you're drawing cards, doing actions to draw cards, doing actions to play cards. Each play card requires money, so you have to go get the money. And, you know, that's building up your engine basically. But but then you get out there and you have to kind of use it. and the higher your number is before you roll the dice, obviously the closer you are going to get higher victory points. So you have to decide, do I want to just go to those fortresses as soon as I can? I'll probably end up only getting four points, but it'll close it down for anybody else. Or do I want to really wait and get like the perfect army? And maybe by the time you've done it, everyone else has already cleared out the fortresses, right? Yeah, it seems like there's, if you're ahead, you just want to, shut it down ASAP unless you have a, you're worried that somebody is going to skyrocket and point elsewhere and you're going to be kicking yourself for not waiting a turn to just grab yeah, a little good. couple extra. It, it looks like a food chain magnate situation, you know, where yeah, crossover. <laughs> if you're making a whole bunch of money on burgers, you want to make sure that everybody's put in that 100. Yeah. In the game. Interesting. Well, I'm just looking at it. It looks very pretty. It looks colorful. The meeples look nice. It's uh, and I know it's a very popular game. It's just it, it, I think it's funny how 
we've gone this long without playing it, and then all of a sudden you do, and you're like, yeah, it's a fantastic game. I just I've, I've complained before to Joel about this, and that's these there's so many of these x of the y's that it's <laughs> yeah it gets my, my brain much. melts and then there's all the new ones too like architects of the y and the paladins of the y and there's more and more and more and it's like oh my god i like which is hilarious for a man who can keep track of just numbers <laughs> 1846 1849 1830 just like to me there's something so utterly mundane about these the the naming mechanisms and how they just blend together that it makes them almost incomprehensible to me from a consumer standpoint or consumer but uh cool and i don't think it's a very expensive game is it no no it's very affordable i think it's in the 30s range smaller box i think too it's not gonna suck up tons of uh, space on your shelf um no i will say that you know among that series i think it's one of the first i can't say for sure i thought i know but i know that um it was basically came to our attention when we went back home or sam went back home i wasn't able to go it's 52 bucks sorry okay so kind of a middle um middle middle priced hero i'd say Mm -hmm. not much player interaction in it but a little bit some take that some take that's that Kayla will like. Yeah, great. <laughs> something something for everyone. Yeah. But I was gonna say that when Sam went home, like and went to Dave's Pop Culture, which is this like you know legendary store that I keep talking up back home where everybody's constantly playing board games. Um, this was the game. Like, there's always like kind of the flavor of the. I want to say flavor of the month, but it's more like three or four months that they play it. And this was like everybody was playing Raiders at the time, so that's she convinced me to buy it, and that's all she wrote. Interesting. And I'm just looking here at the uh, the rest of the series here, and they it's Shem Phillips is the name of the the designer. Him and uh, his artist Mihail Dmitreski or whatever. That's the I think the art is part of the problem is that it's it's he's got a very distinct art style, so that also blends in and also similar yeah. box designs. Uh, cool and how did dc go same old same old same old same old i think uh what can i say i think when i play one-on-one against sam it's always really tight unless one of us gets a runaway and this one was also really tight i think maybe three point difference which when you're dealing with like between 80 and 140 points a three point difference is pretty good yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> At that point, it's almost just... I think I've asked you this before, but I'm going to ask one more time. Do you find the... Because I think Splendor could easily fall into this trap, but when you're playing with a game like that, and uh, you've played it so many times, and you're playing it two-player, so it's just 1v1, that you're you're both playing so optimally that it, it is actually random who's going to win, in the sense of, did the market behave? Did the card flip that it's it's almost like it's programmed that you, if the cards are in your favor, you're going to win. There's there's very little strategy or performing to in terms of uh, manipulating or making choices that you can actually look back on and say, oh, man, why did I do that? I could have done this and it would have uh, been a smarter term or a smarter plan strategically. Both of us usually point out at least one mistake, probably two. 
that the other person made on their turn after their turn is over. Because at this point, like, we're close to that, sure, but I don't want to say that we're playing actually optimally. Let's say that. But pretty damn close. Yeah, there's always something missed, you know? Like, yeah. you know, you could have played that and you would have got an extra three, four power, or whatever, right? And you could have bought another card. Which seems but, like like pointless and innocuous, but at the same time, everything snowballs in a deck builder, right? Yeah. Well, but it's it's like so we were playing Splendor the other day, and I think what do we do? Did we just do one game? We either did one or two games. And I think for me, aside from something like an obvious choice to make, I think there's enough randomness and also um, enough branching paths to take that, like I was saying, outside of barring an obvious sort of, if you'd purchased that one extra red, that would have got you the Lord, and that's three points, and then you that would have put you ahead, or you could have done something similar and been able to buy like one of the top row cards for like five points. I, I think there's enough r- randomness in there that you, it's really difficult to kind of go back and say, did you play optimally? I think you could point to things you, you kind of wish you did better or differently, but there's I, I think there, it's it's just such a, um, I, I'm not sure the word is going to come to me here, but it, it feels like it's a game that's not programmed. You can you can do what you want to do and you can kind of aim to stuff, but there's enough randomness that it almost foils that those goals and you can just kind of, it's like pointing a shotgun at something uh, 500 yards away. You're just kind of aiming in the right direction, hoping something hits it at some point outside of any sort of. A, a duck flying right in front of your face and <laughs> getting lucky, I suppose. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, Splendor is, like, the success is obfuscated enough that it's really difficult to look back at a moment in the game and mm-hmm. say that one decision was objectively better than the last. Yeah. So, like, there's really no, ah, if I had only pulled the green that last time, right? Like, yeah. No, because you have no all, not only right is like there are many different paths to basically the same level of success in Splendor. Like you could probably find like five or six that are basically equal, but you also just don't know what's going to flip. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at. There is that um, me. I, so you can, and this is this is something that's infuriating, but I guess you could just say it's the same for any type of game like that. And luckily it's short enough that you don't, you're not sitting there kicking yourself. Like if imagine playing an eight hour game that was de- decided on like some random flip like that. Although you could argue Civ could be very similar, but I don't want to get into that right now. Yeah, no. But like buying something and then a better thing. Just quickly, without getting branched off too much, is that in order to win a game of Civ at this point in our friend group, all the stars need to align, you know? Like, you need to have not, not get Civil War. You need to not get Regression. <laughs> like, there's yeah. certain things that will just ruin your game. Yep, I think that's totally fair. Because, uh, it, it, you know, it'd be nice, though, that if everyone was actually playing, like, if... And I'd, I just want to see a game of Civ, Joel, where everyone is in competition. Th- does that make sense? You mean, like against each other like trying to knock each other down not even that because i've i've done a, a 180 or maybe not even 180 i'll, I'll say oh, yeah. I, i've done a, a 120 or 10, 110 a 360. on 360 
a 360. <laughs> <laughs> um, that I, I just mean that where everyone is within striking distance, that it's it's never like, oh, some like he didn't advance, like he didn't go on the AST three times or he has like he's been sitting at two cities for a couple turns or yeah i just want everyone it would be nice to see the ebb and flow was actually responded to as opposed to just permanent ebb um permanent ebb, right. yeah. and permanent. you're done yeah if, if that's even right and, and my as soon as i say ebb and flow is flow good is ebb good i don't Ebb-y. ebbing i thought was re- receding or waning is, but yeah i think you got it ebb is coming like out yeah and flow is getting in I think it's it's as soon as I say it, it's like I don't even know why I keep like, saying it. I actually it. don't know because flow is such a neutral term. Yeah, it's like what's it doing? It could be it could be flowing the wrong direction. It could be flowing away from you. It's like power is flowing out from you. I don't know <laughs> the real questions. Yeah, this is getting bogged down. Um, all right, cool. Well, uh, I got to play a a round of 1867 on the weekend with um, our friends upstairs. Uh, so four player game and Joel's actually played this one. I wouldn't say s- super recently, but it's probably one of the more recent ones uh, you've played in person aside from, I think, 1830. Looking um, one? It's the like one set in, in, in 1867, the one set in yeah. Canada and lots and lots of chrome. I don't even think it's not that chromey. It's the it's the 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 gist uh, without spending too much time going into it is it is a partial cap or incremental cap game set in with the landscape of um i guess you could say it's a uh, it's ontario um and uh quebec with the red offboard locations being stuff like uh buffalo detroit and the uh, atlantic provinces and the the gimmicks of the game are that the you can only start minor companies at first and they're mandatory 50 pay or 50 50 pay and then once a company, once the first three train has been purchased, then you can merge minor companies that are connected with each other. You can, and they turn into uh, the major corporations that we all know and love. Uh, but if the minor company is also doing well enough on the stock market, then it's in the right column. You can also convert it to the major company. And then later on, you can just start majors outright. And there's no bankruptcy in this game. If a train company uh, can has to buy something, it takes loans and the director's money is never uh, put into these loans. And if it can't afford a train after loans or can never, can't repay a loan uh, or it doesn't have a train at the start of certain phases, uh, Sir John A. Macdonald rolls in like uh, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis in Gains of New York and just, now. <laughs> and just takes the train, it takes the companies from you. And that can be used to your advantage. Uh, apparently it's smart to deliberately nationalize some companies just to get capital because you get paid out for them. It it depresses stock price briefly, oh. but it's not even that disastrous. Um, but there's there's some gimmicks to it. So there is it is chromier than 1830, but it's nothing absurd. It's nothing remotely like 1817. Um, but it, my thoughts on it were, and they they were slightly alleviated this time because in the past we've played this. I think this is our third or fourth time playing it. The two trains seem to last forever, and part of the problem is that starting capital is so tight in this game and the trains are so expensive and with half pays it seems like it takes forever for you to be able to afford um the afford more trains 
So when, as soon as you get to the three trains, when the greens come out, that's when the game really starts. It, it opens up with more tactics and strategy and shenanigans. Um, but it takes a bit for you to get to that point. And I was looking online and people were saying, usually by, because it's always two uh, operating rounds by default until the very last one. And people are saying, well, by this, it's usually by the second set of ORs at best, maybe the early third, you should be on the three trains. And I was just looking at it saying, oh my God, it's like, I think it took us till the, the third set before we got there. But part of the issue is it's, and this is what I was going to bring up to you, Joel, is that similar to 1830, there's this, abstract concept to it the fact that you should always be buying trains that's the natural timer of the game and if you're not buying these trains the game isn't ending and for all intents and purposes 1867 has an unlimited bank when in reality it's fifteen thousand dollars but in perspective 1830's bank is twelve thousand so add an extra three grand to the bank and this thing is if it breaks something incredible has happened and i don't want to know how long that game went for but the payouts are huge in this game. Uh, I think Mark made tons of cash and still came in third or fourth. Uh, so it's it, the payouts are gigantic. But it, so my only criticism is that there, if people aren't being aggressive buying trains and shuffling them around and purposefully taking out loans, because I think we're just also scared of bankruptcies and being stuck putting the bills for things that people are hesitant to, to lose companies or pay out of pocket for stuff. But the game relies on you. Uh, spending like a drunken uh, train engineer to acquire these trains and keep the the pace going, and that's you could argue it's a flaw, but I think it's just like saying in 1830 it's Why a flaw. Do you have to people pay for don't your buy loan as soon as you get it. <laughs> it's just because otherwise you could go bankrupt right away. That's what they're getting at. Because when you play it out properly, if you were able to take the loan and let's say you bought the train immediately, it, it's basically a crutch for you, Joel, because. It'd be, it's almost a splatter-esque, the opposite of something in splatter, because you can lose roads and boats in the very first turn if you don't build the right thing. So this game is basically saying, you have to make sure you're able to pay it back first turn. Otherwise, let's say you take out two loans, and you can't do it, then you just nationalize your company right away, and it kills your stock price for every loan that's outstanding, too. So it, it's, a, it's a mercy. It's an abstract mercy, but it's a mercy, actually. Anyway, that- mercy that they... I don't know what it means, like why you got to lose the $10 or whatever, but I'll believe Five you. bucks, yeah. There's got to be a reason. It, when you... Anyway. When you, <laughs> when, if you were to have played it recently, I think you would have a, a, a better sense of it. But it's definitely... It's, it's not mean. It's not a mean game. There's very little stock market shenanigans uh, because stocks never... You, when you sell shares in this game too, you don't drop stocks. Only the president selling shares drops stocks. And if the president sells six shares of a company, the stock only drops once. It doesn't drop for each share sold too. So it's a very, it is not financially oriented. It's all about handling mergers and aggressive tokening. And it's not a run good company game, but it, it tricks you into thinking that because any game like uh, that allows you to just pawn off your, <laughs> like basically, create a suitcase company that shuffles all its trains off to another company and then you just let sir john a pick it up <laughs> on the canadian tax dollars uh i wouldn't call that a run good companies but it isn't it it's it's almost not too nice we're used to more teeth like you're 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 scared priority is a big deal and this priority is important just because you don't want to get stuck not being able to buy something of a good company because you want to invest in these because i think 
Tia's company was worth like $490 a share or something, which was just like my eyes were gouging because they're, <laughs> I think you get double jumps. I'm not totally sure. I might be mixing that one up. I think it's just single jumps now. 1867. 1867. One advice I'll give to the listener if you play it don't merge three companies. It's that's, yeah. Two. Don't do that unless you desperately want to. One of your trains is going to get nationalized or companies are going to get nationalized. You want to move a train around for some reason. Yeah. Apparently, nationalization isn't that bad. You know, you get paid out. John A gives you a fair. Uh, <laughs> Reasonably <and> fair. <laughs> <laughs> he, he takes a look at your train and says, yeah. I know what this is worth. It's not the worst. It's not the gives worst. You, gives you what you deserved. Not what you need. All right. Musical break. We'll be back in a second. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Android's Dungeon on CFRU 93.3 FM. What you just heard was two tracks off of Carpenter Brut's live album from what year is that? 2017, which <laughs> it seems recent, but it's, it feels very long ago, I guess. Uh, two tracks. The first is Le Peuve, and the second is Hang 'em All from the live trilogy album. I think he's French. Makes sense. It's a little bit of disco synth wave, dark synth. Uh, if you don't feel energized after listening to those two tracks and like hopping in your Firebird and blasting off down, I don't know, we'll say uh, through LA and uh, wasting some, uh, some skinhead gangsters who are threatening some kids, if you need to get on your vigilante game, folks. You need to, you need to start acting real cool. Because that's what these tracks are for. Taking What's you wrong to... with you? Why don't you have a Firebird? Why don't you have a Firebird? Why don't you have firearms? Why don't you live in Los Angeles? Why isn't this 1983 or 84, I guess? Uh, before we went to break, we were talking about 1867. We were talking about Raiders of the North Sea. And we talked a little bit about Splendor and DC Deck Builder. Uh, I forgot to mention I wanted to say that I have been able to finally figure out how to, through perfectly legal and non-copyright infringing means, <clears throat> get uh, my copy of Shin Megami Tensei Five playing um, and on, on my Switch. <laughs> and it is uh, exactly what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> All your wildest dreams have come true. <laughs> It's, it's not exactly it, it but it's mostly there and uh i was i was telling joel about it because uh it's it, it's this is my shameful secret that this is the <laughs> this is the most I, I wouldn't put myself in a weeb category but i think when it comes to these games i can't help but just <laughs> this is when things get out of control but i don't want to see the photos of you cosplaying like these characters are. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's it's for those who don't know it's an rpg series that's based off of i think it was a novel from the 80s and uh they made one for the i think it was a super nintendo initially and it's a dungeon crawler uh but before pokemon was pokemon before it was a glimmer in the eyes of nintendo and game freak i almost feel like they ripped off shin megami tensei now that i think about it uh but it's it's principal gimmick is that it's usually a semi-post-apocalyptic RPG, a JRPG, always set in Japan or in the Tokyo, greater Tokyo region for the most part. Um, and the central gimmick is that you're running around and there are all these uh, demons that you come across uh, that are based off of famous religions and folklore and um, urban legends. And you fight them, they all have weaknesses, and they all have strengths. Some are completely immune to certain attacks. Some are vulnerable. And uh, you want to recruit them to your party. And you do this by talking to them. And you engage in a semi-rock, paper, scissors sort of uh, verbal combat with them. And you get a feel for what works and what doesn't. Because they all have personalities based on their type. So some are curmudgeonly old like uh, old men. Some are like uh, bloodthirsty monsters. Some are uh, seductress uh, succubi. And you tell your responses to them to what you think they would like, and then you get them on your team, and then you basically 
mash them together to make different types of demons based on their types, and they get more and more powerful, and it's just RPGs with leveling up and all the rest of that stuff. So the central hook is quite addicting, and the difficulty is typically much more than you'd expect in a standard RPG game. And the newest one just came out, I think it's been like five or six years since the latest last entry in the series. Um, proper entry, because the Persona series is insanely popular, and that's a spin-off of this this uh this game series it uses similar mechanics but persona persona it's persona is even weebier that and i like those games but these are like persona something else because it's a dating simulator mixed with (laughs) the demon pokemon hunting (laughs) and uh they're the persona fans are another breed entirely like and i say fans i mean fans fans (laughs) the convention types, but uh, you better watch they, out. They're gonna start thinking you're a nerd, Jack. No, I can't do that ever. My reputation maintained. <laughs> Good, more time for me. Yeah, good time for me and my digital love life. My digital love life, my uh, digital devil saga. Anyway, that's persona or uh, persona. Jesus, uh, uh, SMT five. That uh, I, Joel. I think you should try to. Get a borrow a copy from Alex after he's done with it, and then you can see if you like it or not. But uh, uh, it's definitely up his alley. I can tell you that much. <laughs> uh, so, how's D and D going? D and D's good. I got a good D and D update for you. Good. I also had uh, one other thing. Um, I was looking at a list of top board games for two players. And, you know, it's pretty generic. You've got the the usual suspects, Roll for the Galaxy, Scrabble, King Domino, Azul, that kind of thing. But I was curious to see Calico on the list. Ah, there we go. That's a little bit of a uh, circle back. Yeah. Jack was mentioning that he's been sort of taunted by Calico lately. So it looks looks like a more advanced Azul, maybe. And uh, it does look pretty good. And this is uh, number seven on the list of top 20. Yeah, I think uh, I'll have to. uh, I know uh, Josh picked up. uh, Picked it up alongside something else. Wingspan at J&J's on a uh, on a whim. And uh, I'll have to see if uh, he can get Calico on the table, too, because I know there's talk of um, us finally getting to at least try or figure out how unfathomable works this weekend, but we'll see if that works out too. Well, I don't know. I probably can't do it, but uh, <laughs> I was saying Saturday he might be able to play. So if you're available before you do the D and D yourself. Well, I'm not, there's no, if you're not around, I'm not doing D and D. Oh, you don't think they could survive without, uh, Nope. Nope. Spider-Man <laughs> rolling in with his three attacks or four attacks. Yeah. Although I have to say, before we go into D and D proper, I just quick interruption. They've been uh, Mark ended up buying uh, Baldur's Gate as well, and he's been hey. he rolled the exact same character in it, so he's a tiefling sorcerer. <laughs> and I told I told Daryl, thank God, I hope he's learning something, <laughs> or the game is making it worse. D and D, right? Not Hans. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, so <laughs> I uh, Baldur's Gate two is three dollars. Yeah, I picked it up. Oh, have you ever played it? Uh, nope. And then also. Because That's going to be you, a trip back. Because you kept comparing it and saying it was similar. And you did Divinity. Divinity. I mean, you can't beat that price. What was it, 12 bucks? Mm-mm. They were Nothing wrong like with that. 75 or something. When they I really, 
I want you to tell me what you think of it. It is ruthlessly difficult, though. Don't uh, do not get like don't put it beyond normal on difficulty. I know <laughs> I don't normally do that, but it's just don't don't play around. It is so I difficult. I love I love difficult turn-based stuff where it, I don't have I'm, to rush uh, myself, but like I have the time to think. Yeah, it's uh, it's something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I mean, so into, sorry, it please. might be easier rolling in a party, eh? Well, I meant like so. It depends what you want to do. I, I'm with my characters. I did the, you, I, I personally hate managing multiple characters in these games. It drives me nuts. So I prefer to do smaller ones. And and luckily, Divinity even accommodates that because there's a perk you take called Lone Wolf, that you basically have, you get more experience and you have more action points when it's just you and one other party member. So it's like, oh, perfect. This is exactly what I'm looking for. But it, the, I, maybe a full party would make group things easier. Two? Pardon me? Group of two? A group of two, correct. Sounds tough. Well, it's... I'm just thinking, like, D&D-wise, but obviously I don't know how this RPG works. Yeah, you'll see. Yeah, give it... Look at it, and then you can kind of figure it out. Yeah. But anyway, go. what about your D&D campaign? Because Joel's quick spoiler, he said he was going to have to do some Deus Ex Machina on them because i guess they may yeah. have quick save themselves into a corner perhaps oh boy did they ever <laughs> it's like uh it's just what <laughs> it's like it's like some kind of uh ongoing like 90s sitcom or something it's like what shenanigans are these <laughs> <laughs> like, what you get up to this week how did <laughs> you might wonder how i got myself in this situation <laughs> yep it's me uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah exactly oh yeah so that's kind of how it is every week but but because it had gone like three weeks of this island um and that's been three weeks yeah things were just getting worse that i just had to come up with something really yeah it's either that or just allow them to tpk right like they were gonna fail the mission yeah so uh i'll begin at the beginning of we've got seven minutes So I'll give a quick rundown of how they got there. So this is the same old thing. They go to Malmerg. They uh, have somebody who's looking for what uh, Marmo Revisa is looking for a stowaway who's pretending to be a religious person. So they get sent off to this abbey. In the abbey, that person is there hiding out, um, pretending to be, I don't know, an acolyte of Procan or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then when they're there... Um, it becomes night and a, and a bunch of monsters come out of the sea and start dragging off corpses from the night before and then, you know, coming after them. And it, it's basically a defend the base uh, three-wave mission. And the first wave is like nothing. It's just kind of like, hey, here's the thing. And then the second wave is kind of softens them up. Maybe they get touched. And then the third wave is actually a reasonably tough fight where it has like a boss and uh, a bunch of monsters. So in, in their situation, you know, um, we had this new player jumping in uh, in between them being at Malmark and them arriving. So I decided that the new player would be the person that they were looking for. Oh, neat. So the stowaway who's... Oh, I remember this now. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Is, is our friend Aaron, who's mm-hmm. new to D&D. Um, and so they're... Uh, bard 
um, I don't know, gnome who's masquerading as a like a, <laughs> a six foot tall woman by using disguise. <laughs> That's all <solid> disguise. <laughs> yeah. In in the in the definition of disguise self, you can make yourself a foot taller or shorter, but you know whatever. It's more fun this way. Yeah. Um, and so we got them and they're trying to like hide their identity. So they have a fake name and they're trying to avoid Stefan because Stefan's the Ugrish guy who's been sent to find her for, you know, his boss or whatever. And that's the side thing. But then, you know, like the hell breaks loose and they soon forget about like the little bits of intrigue. And, um, the first wave obviously done second wave. Remember the ship gets attacked. Mm-hmm. They just decided, you know, screw the guys on the ship. They're just gonna, they're gonna have to defend themselves. And so that didn't go well. <laughs> they they declined the offer to let it blow, which obviously kills a whole bunch of the drowned ones too. Mm-hmm. Which is a whole other thing. And then for some reason they left out to just to wrap things up here. Um, on the third wave, which was the second night. They all left the base instead of using the protection of the base. They all left the base and decided to face the monsters out on the beach. Okay. Um, which just meant that they had no cover and no allies and no uh, methods. There's a whole bunch of methods in, incorporated into the base that you can use to slow the monsters down and yeah. you know defend yourself and everything like that. That was all awesome. <laughs> they just charged out. And then on the on the top of it, I don't remember how well you remember the fight, but you dealt with the south end first, and then you went north when you did it. Mm-hmm. Um, in their situation, they didn't even notice the south. So oh, the geez. south is like climbing up on the walls and getting into the base and breaking down the barriers. And, you know, they're up in the north, and they just never come south. They never see... Uh, everything that's going on down there. So, right, like it began at the beginning. And then the whole week to think of monsters abby is breached right and then anyway (laughs) um so what i did was uh and let me know what you think of this so two things the mad druid uh was uh, the bard decided to cast a spell magic on it Uh on him and even though you know he's not under any kind of curse in the book i decided well maybe he's like enslaved like the abolith did so yeah I went and looked at the difficulty of enslave and how to dispel it and decided that they successfully, you know, got the druid back and that the druid would be an ally because of that. So that was one thing that helped them, right? Because they had a druid coming out doing polymorph and summon monsters and stuff. But that just kind of slowed the enemy down. What really saved them was I had the priest of Procan use control water. I don't remember you used that as one of your items in the last fight of Saltmarsh, you created a whirlpool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the Kraken kind of just passed the save and ignored it. 
Yep. <laughs> so I'm like, well, that was shitty. Well, anyway, I got <laughs> I got him to use um, use it to just kind of raise pillars of water on the edges of the water, and then bring those pillars of water up into the middle into a giant ball, kind of like a you know in the Dragon Ball Z where he spends three episodes making one attack bigger and bigger. <laughs> so I did like uh, four rounds of combat for that all to take place. So if people made perception checks, they could notice he was doing it. They could see this giant ball of water forming above the island. And in those four rounds of combat, they had to kind of figure out what are we going to do once this big, once this water comes down. So they managed to kill like some key people and then get inside just in time <laughs> Um, most of them did for the water to come crashing down on the abbey and create a big tidal wave to knock all the things to literally just wipe the map. Um, and they were happy with it, so like no one complained about the Deus Ex element of it, so that's nice. But the, the freaking rogue decided to stay outside. Oh my god. So then we had the situation where he has to make a deck save or get washed out into the ocean, and he rolls a natural twenty. Wow! <laughs> and it's like, okay, so the you know the assassin that got turned into a cow by the druid, uh, you jump on his back, you ride him like a surfboard, <laughs> and then when you get to the higher altitude, you jump off. This <laughs> is the escape from LA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So that's the situation. And then they got they went crazy over the seagull, which is weird. Like the seagull shows up when the sun comes, and now they're like, you know, obsessed with the seagull as a pet. Okay, we're out of time, so that's we're gonna have to stop it there because it's it's a. I like the the fix. I like where they were excited. That's probably the best okay? part. I think it was a perfect solution. Although I thought you were gonna say they got captured and we're gonna be—that's a standard source solution. I'm just like you lose, you lose, but you've been captured as opposed to just wiping out the party. It's like, all right, game over. Thanks for playing Ghost of Saltmarsh. But <laughs> all right, running it there. Thank you for listening to Androids Dungeon. Uh, Checks on Instagram, uh, Twitter, AD Radio CFRU. Choose an email: droiddungeonradio at uh, gmail.com. And uh, we'll be back next week with more silliness and hopefully games to talk about. I'm Jack. I'm Joel. Have a good one. Bye-bye.